Good to see everyone who's back out tonight, and those that are visiting, we're glad you're here. I hope you'll want to come back and be with us again in the future. We uh, had a lot of announcements this morning, and um, we have some folks that are sick, some folks that uh, are dealing with issues, including my mother, as I announced, and uh, got a little bit of a short text this afternoon, so just waiting more tests tomorrow for those of you that were asking. Um, I'll know more, I'm sure, tomorrow or the next day. But uh, keep her in your prayers, if you will. We had a couple of people place membership this morning. Nadia is back with us tonight. Oliver Heath placed membership with us again. And uh, so we welcome them and uh, want to give them all the encouragement we can. When I began preaching this lesson, and I'm going to go back to talking about the Apostle Peter, I've been kind of doing that almost on the average of every other week or every three weeks or so. Um, looking at different incidents in his life, but you may think that at least for part of the sermon, Wes and I got together and hammered these lessons out, but uh, they'll go hand in hand with one another, I believe. As we're looking at the Apostle Peter, and tonight I'm going to focus on several events that occurred strictly and around the crucifixion and really the night of the betrayal. I'm going to focus on incidents during that night. To say the least, and I'll start and finish with this, this is not one of Peter's better moments, uh, not one of his better days, we might say. Um, If you've ever kind of gone through a day where everything seems to go wrong, everything you say is the wrong thing to say, everything you do is the wrong thing to do, and if you end up at the end of the day saying, man, it's been one of those days, this would have been Peter's day. It's just, uh, it's not a good day. He's had some great ones, we've seen that, but not this one. If you'll open up your Bible to uh, the book of Luke, and I'm going to start in Luke chapter 22, and I'm really not going to look at every event of the betrayal night, certainly not going to do that, I'm not going to read every verse, but it starts, if you remember, it is, I believe, Thursday of that week, Jesus has prepared for and is now eating what is really the last Passover meal. And if you remember the feast days, they overlap here. You have Passover meal and you have the first day of the, fe- of the week of the Feast of Unle- Unleavened Bread. And so Jesus will eat the Passover and then Jesus will, during the sitting and observing the Unleavened Bread and so forth, he will institute what we call the Lord's Supper or what Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 11. A lot of times people view this as the Last Supper, so if you're looking at your outline, I'm going to talk about a couple of things or a few things that happen at the Last Supper, and that's more just to keep in mind the time of the night and all of that that we're dealing with. It starts out, the Last Supper before um, the crucifixion, that Thursday night when Jesus is gathered for that Passover meal, and what the Jews should be thinking about that is, the apostles should be focusing on, is that it is the time to remember the last night of bondage in Egypt. It is the night upon which, if we go all the way back into Exodus 12, it was the night upon which God, in a very serious, grave way, had spared His own people by the passing over of the death of the firstborn. He spared His own people while at the same time demonstrating His power and causing the effect of the release of the Jews from bondage. You should be thinking about that. You should be focused on that. It is a serious time. And now Jesus, 
after they finish that, Jesus is going to take a piece of unleavened bread, and he's going to take some fruit of the vine, and he is going to institute a memorial that will even supersede that. It will even be more, uh, if you will, serious than the one they've just observed. Obviously, we're talking about the, the Lord's Supper. It will be the greatest memorial in history, and as he himself thinks about giving his body in sacrifice and the bread to represent that for all the rest of time, or shedding his blood and how he will die in a few hours uh, so that man's sins can be washed away. He'll take the fruit of the vine and it will represent that. But while his mind is focused on all of that and he's thinking about all of that, the apostles are kind of going through the motions like maybe we do sometimes and they're eating the meals, and they're sitting there and listening, half listening or whatever, but they've also got their thoughts on something else. And so as we look at Luke 22, and I'd like for you to look at that with me, you can see indeed the eating of the meal. And then we get down into, oh, about verse, where do I want to start here? Let's talk about verse 24. When it says, as they were sitting there, there was also a strife among them about which of them should be accounted the greatest. Now, they've done that before. You could go back to Mark 9, and again, in another serious situation, they're kind of going along, and Jesus is teaching and doing something, and they break out in an argument over who's going to be the greatest. We would see it again in Luke 9, same kind of thing. We would see it when James and John had their mother come to him. Who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to sit on your right hand? So it's of great concern to them in their misunderstanding about the kingdom. It's of great concern to them who's going to be the most, the best. Now, Wes said that he's been talking a lot about pride. And I thought it was kind of funny this morning when he said, we're not going to talk about pride because I thought, well, I'm going to start by talking about it. But the point is, they are filled with it. And while these various serious things are going on, the idea is... Me, 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 I'm going to be the greatest. No, me, me, I'm going to be the greatest. And that's what they're thinking about, even as he again brings up the fact that he's going to give his body and give his blood. Now we know, and I'd like for you to turn over to John 13. I'll spend a little bit of time here in John 13. We know that Jesus, to really hammer the point, he's told them before. He had told them back in Mark 9, we could go back and look at that. He's told them before, if you want to be great, then you serve. If you want to be great, then you humble yourself. And so I think to demonstrate that, as we look at John 13, and I'm going to start, oh, about verse, uh, let's start down about verse 4. He rises from supper, John says, and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. I thought about when Wes was reading Luke 7 this morning and how Jesus said to Simon, You know, I came into your house, Simon, and and you didn't even offer me water to wash my feet. I mean, it was courteous in that day. It was the courteous, courteous thing to do. You would come walk, you know, sandals on a dusty road. We've all heard that. Your feet would be dirty. And so the courteous thing to do would be to hand somebody some water and, and a towel. You know, here, wash your feet off. Refresh yourself. You know, that kind of But you didn't do that, Simon. And obviously, with 12 apostles, none of them apparently saw fit to do that for Jesus. So when Jesus got up from supper, 
He took the water and he took the towel and he prepared. He doesn't, it's not a lot of fanfare. He doesn't jack them up, as we might say today, for what they have not done for him. He just starts bowing down to wash their feet. And if you'll notice in verse 6, he came to Simon Peter. And I wonder sometimes, how many apostles did he wash before Simon? Is Simon the first. But he came to Simon Peter and Peter said, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do, you do not know. You don't understand what I do. And that's exactly right. You've been fighting for the last three years about who is going to be number one. You don't have a clue about humility. You don't know what it means to humble yourself. You don't really understand what it means to bow down. You saw a woman in Luke 7 bow down before my feet and wash it with her tears. But you don't understand that. And even on this very last night, before I humble myself all the way to a, crucifix, a crucifixion, you still don't understand. What I'm doing, Peter, you don't know. You don't understand. And he answered and said unto him, you, don't, you know not, but you will know hereafter. And Peter said unto him, of course, you will never wash my feet. Not my feet, you won't. You may wash these other guys, but not mine. I don't know what was going on in Peter's mind. I don't know what Peter was thinking, if he was ashamed of what he had not done, if he's thinking that I'll answer again like I've done so many times in the past and I'll be commended for that. I have no idea what was going on in his head. Neither do you. But Peter, you're never going to wash my feet. Not mine. And of course then Jesus has to rebuke him again. It's the wrong thing to say. It's not what Peter should have been saying. If I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. Verse 8. You've got to understand it, Peter. You've got to experience this so you can understand what it means to take part with me. Because what it means to take part with me is you've got to humble yourself like I'm going to do. And you'll see that in a few hours. You've got to understand it, Peter. Peter, not my feet. And yet I think when you look at verse 8 and you listen to Peter, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. I think when we look, look at Peter, one thing we can be certain of is that Peter recognizes a position with Jesus when he messes up. And I think he knows he's messed up here. I'm going to suggest something to you, and I don't know this for sure, and you hear me say this, this kind of thing sometimes. Take it with a grain of salt, but I want to suggest something to you. I wonder sometimes if from this point on, I mean, the dude has been arguing about who's going to be the greatest, and he knows it's wrong. And now Jesus is illustrating the humility, and maybe he's ashamed, and he's upset, and so it's, you'll never wash my feet, not mine. I'm, you know, I'm not good enough, etc. Maybe he's saying that. But I'm going to say that for the next several hours, he will be trying to make up for that. And everything Jesus will say over the next few hours about here's how all of you are going to mess up, here's what all of you are going to do, he will object every time, not me, not me, not me. And every time he does, it'll get worse and worse for people. So you'll never wash my feet. Well, if I don't, you have no part with me. Then Jesus will go on, if you notice in this passage, and I put down a number of references down here for you, Matthew 26, Luke 22, if we went back there, 
Again, here in John, you can see it. And I want you to drop down with me to verse 18. Jesus will start directly saying, outright saying, one of you is going to betray me. So betray me. So let's, let's read this together. He, of course, he's gone to each one. He's washed them. He says, you're clean, but not all of you. One of you is not clean. You remember all of that is in this passage. Pick up in verse 18. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen. But that the scripture may be fulfilled, he that eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes, of course, straight out here, not beating around the bush as we might say. I tell you before it come that when it come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receives whomsoever I send receives me, etc. And he begins to tell them, one of you, in verse 21. What Jesus had thus said, he said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, one of you shall betray me. Now, I want you to try to put yourself in on that night. You're gathered in this room. There's 12 of you and Jesus. You've been with Jesus for these several years. You've seen him do all of these things. If you're Peter, and we're going to focus on Peter. If you're Peter, Jesus has... You know, on that time in Matthew 16 when he asked that question, who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? Peter answers. That was a great moment in his life. You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. You're right, Peter. And then he began from that time beyond that, he began to tell them that he had to go to Jerusalem, he had to suffer, he had to be killed, he had to die, be raised the third day, that that's what it was all about. And Peter, remember, pulled him aside and began to rebuke him. No, that's not going to happen. It's not going to be that way for you. And Jesus said, you're thinking like people in the world. You're not thinking correctly, Peter. Now, here Jesus on this night, he has started out by rebuking them, of course, passively, by washing their feet. Peter has spoken up. No, wrong thing to say. You're not listening, Peter. You're not getting it. Then Jesus has said... You know, yeah, you messed up there, but one of you of the twelve is go- is a traitor. And you know, if someone knew that, if we, if someone walked in here and addressed this group and said, "Guys, I want to tell you, there's a person in here that is a traitor, and this person has sold out our leader." I mean, we would start with, "Who is it?" And that's exactly the way they're going to react. But if you're listening to that and you're thinking, "Okay, I just messed up." And I've been messing up. Every time this issue of, of him dying comes up, I messed up. I mean, Peter's like, it's not me, is it? And you're not talking about me because Peter knows in his heart he loves the Lord. He certainly is no traitor. He makes a lot of mistakes, but he's no traitor. And so Peter will begin to say, and the rest of them will begin to say, it's not me, it's not me. And all of them, you know, kind of following his lead, it's not me, is it? And Judas will even feign that he doesn't know. He'll feign surprise here. He's already done what he's done. But he will, you know, in a hypocritical way, he'll like, no, it's not me, is it? And Jesus will go on, we know the story, Jesus will go on and point out, yes, it is you. The one that dips in the sop with me, it is him. Now I want you to kind of get all of that in your mind and be thinking about that as we go on in the story here. Because it doesn't end there. They will get up from that supper and they'll go out into the Mount of Olives and Jesus will continue to talk about one is going to betray him. I want you to go over to Mark 14 and I'm going to skip around in these 
gospel accounts. But go over to Mark 14 with me, if you will. And let's pick up reading as they get up from the supper and they go out. Start down. Oh, that's not the right passage. Mark 14. And I'll go down to about verse 26. When they sung a hymn, remember right after the institution of the Lord's Supper, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Now pick up reading with me here in verse 27 when it says, Jesus said unto them, all of you shall be offended. Now think about Peter here. You've already made some comments. You've already boasted a little bit. All of you will be offended. Now what offended means is you'll all stumble. You're going to all fail this night because of me. As it is written in Zechariah, I will smite the shepherd, Jesus is the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And after that I am risen, I'll go before you into Galilee. And you'll notice in verse 29, but Peter. So Jesus, one of you is going to betray me. Okay, it's not me, is it? I know it's not me. It's not me, it's not me, it's not me. But Jesus will say, yeah, one of you is a traitor. But the truth is, all of you, are going to be offended. All of you are going to stumble. All of you are going to scatter like a bunch of frightened sheep. Now, you've been boasting and you've been saying, it's not me. Surely, Lord, you don't mean me. I know myself. I know who I am. I would never do such a thing. Well, all of you will run. They'll come and every one of you will run. And so Jesus begins to say that. And, of course... Peter joining in, but Peter sort of seems to take the lead. And in fact, I think he takes the lead in the denial. Go back with me, if you will, to Matthew's account when Jesus says everybody will be offended. Now, I'm going to read each of the accounts in this particular point, or three of them anyway, in this particular point. And I want you to notice in each case what each writer says about Peter. So let's start in Matthew 26. Where did I want to start? Verse 36. Matthew 26. And go down with me to verse 36. So Jesus came with them into the place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, you sit here for a while while I go out and pray. Ah, got ahead of myself. That's not where I wanted to go. Um, Oh, back in verse 33. And I'm back on track now. So go back up to verse 33. Peter answered and said to Jesus, after he had quoted Zechariah, verse 33, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. I want you to listen to that language. Again, the mindset of Peter, he's already fouled up. He's already had his mind wandering on being the greatest in the kingdom when he should have been focused on the Passover. He's already been arguing with the others when his mind should have been and his attention should have been on Jesus talking about the institution of the Lord's Supper. you ever imagine the institution of the Lord's Supper? you ever imagine sitting there and having the Lord take a piece of bread? I mean, we remember it each Sunday, but have you ever imagined that situation? And I know a lot of people have. And have you ever thought about what it might be like to have the Lord serve you the first Lord's Supper? You know? Well, if you had been one of the apostles and you'd been thinking like they were thinking, you're half listening to that. You're in your own little world arguing about who's going to be number one. I wonder sometimes when we take the Lord's Supper, where our mind wanders. You know, we go through the motions of taking it, the bread's passed out every week, through the vine every week. I wonder how many times we focus our attention off of Jesus and on the self. And maybe we do that and we're even quick to look back and say, how could the apostles be doing that? We do the same thing. So you've already messed up and you've already been shown and made to feel bad. I mean, if the Lord came to you and bowed down to wash your feet, 
you know, you would feel bad. And then, the, then Jesus begins to say, everybody's going to run like sheep. Now, I know me. And, and, and I know if someone begins, you know, because I've told you many times, you know, I started out in life as probably the worst coward you've ever known. I know what it's like to be a coward. I know what it feels like to be one. I know what it's like to be made fun of because you're one. And so whenever someone starts challenging, you're afraid, my initial gut reaction is to be just like Peter and jump up and say, not me, Jack, I'm not afraid. And then I have to, you know, take a step back and remember who I am. So I can understand Peter here. I will not run. If they kill me, I won't run. Listen to the language of this. Matthew 26, verse 33. I will never be offended. Verse 34. Jesus said to him, Verily I say unto you, that this night before the cock crows, you will deny me not once but three times. Peter said, Let me tell you, though I will die with you, I will not deny you. And notice the phrase, likewise then, said all the disciples. For the emphasis, let's read a couple of other accounts. Go with me to Mark 14. And look at Mark's account, and I'm going to go back to about verse 29. I'm going to bounce around back and forth. If you want to hold your finger at one of these passages to be able to turn back. But look at Mark 14 and go down to verse 29. Again, Jesus saying that all of you will scatter this night. Peter said unto him, although all will be offended... Yet will not I. Again, Jesus said, before the cock crows twice, you'll deny me three times. Verse 31. If I should die with you, I will will not deny you. Now, I want you to notice the detail Mark adds. I will not deny you in any wise. I won't even remotely say something that denies you, Jesus. They can kill me, and they won't get a denial out of me. I want you to go over to Luke 22. And in Luke 22, he's, remember Luke is the one who accounts that of them arguing about who's going to be the greatest and all of that kind of stuff. And then Jesus begins to point out to them that indeed you're going to be offended, you're going to fall. Notice down in verse 31 something Jesus said back to Peter. Luke records the Lord saying, Simon, incidentally I want you to notice this, not Peter or Cephas, the rock. But in this case, his given name, Simon. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you. And remember, Jesus had started out by saying this to all 12 of them. But it had been Peter that jumped up and said, not me, never me. I will never, not even in one little bit, will I deny you. Now Jesus focuses on Peter. Simon, Satan wants you. Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But you notice as it follows in verse 32, but I have prayed for you. You have to love Jesus here. And and we were talking a little bit, Wes, about your sermon. And we were talking about Luke 7. And we were talking about, you know, how that passage, I was talking about how it gets to me. And, yeah, I cried a little bit all over again this morning listening to Luke 7. I've said to people, you know, if my faith ever starts to waver, if things in life get me down, if, if, you know, you begin to wonder, is all this true? Is, is, you know, is this real? And and so I said, it always comes back for me to Jesus. And the one thing that converted me in the beginning, even when I didn't believe in myself enough to obey the gospel, the one thing that converted me was Jesus. And it always does. All over again. 
And it's stories like this right here. Because you know, this is the last night. We know what he's going through emotionally. We're going to see that in a moment when he goes out in that garden and he agonizes in prayer. He's going through all of that. He's sitting here with 12 friends. He's instituting the memorial for the rest of time of how people will honor him for what he's going to do and remember him for what he's going to do. And all they can think about is themselves. And then on top of that, Peter... He wants to go a step further and really start boasting of how much he loves Jesus, how faithful he'll be to Jesus. I'll not deny you in one little bit, and I'll even die for you. No, you won't. No matter how much you love me, and no matter how close of friends we are, you won't. Satan wants you, Peter. Just like he wants all of us. And he's going to hit you at the hardest point. He's going to get you when you think you can't be God. I know that's not grammatically correct, but it makes the point I want to make. He's going to get you where you think you can't fail. But I believe in you. I didn't call you the rock from the beginning for nothing. I've prayed for you. And I love this. I mean, it gets me every time I read it and has for nearly 40 years. I've prayed for you. And when, not if, when you're converted, you strengthen these guys. You just led them into mouthing off about how they'd stand for me and they wouldn't run. And they're following your leadership. Then be a leader. Show them what it means to come back from messing up so bad like you will this night. Now that's Jesus. You're in the garden. And Peter is telling you there's no way he'll fail you. Okay. One more example. Now go back with me to Matthew 26 again, if you will. So it's hitting Jesus. It's getting late. He's thinking about what he's going through. We know that because he's going to... Pray and say it. He's agonizing over it. And it's building. It's just like you when you've got to go through something and it's very difficult. And the closer it gets, you know, the breath starts leaving. You're having a hard time to breathe. And the fear starts coming in. And all of that's the human reaction. Well, I don't know if he went through every bit of that. But he certainly went through the agony. And the Bible talks about how troubled he was. So start reading with me, if you will, in Matthew 26. And let's go down to verse 36. Then comes Jesus with them again into a place called Gethsemane, and he said, You sit here while I go and pray yonder, the King James says. While I go a little further and I pray, we're told by Mark it's about a stone's throw away. And he took Peter and James and John, and notice verse 37 when it says, He began to be sorrowful and very heavy. And he told them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. In other words, I'm so grieved I'm so, we might say words like, I'm so messed up, I'm so troubled, you know, I'm hurting so bad, you know, it's killing me. And that's what he's basically saying to them, even unto death. You wait here, and notice how he says in verse 38, all I'm asking you to do is watch with me. 
He's not asking for Peter to charge, you know, with a sword. He's not asking anybody to die for him or with him. He's just asking, sit here and watch with me. I'm really, really, really upset. It's kind of like, I don't know if any of you have ever been through a situation where you, maybe a loved one is having surgery or whatever it might be, and you call the closest people to you and say, you say to them, I just want you to sit with me. And I'm sure we've all been in those situations. You know, you go to a hospital waiting room and you're literally there for hours. And you just, I mean, it just helps. Just having somebody that cares enough to be with you. You just sit here and watch with me. Now, you know exactly what happened. And we read the different accounts, and I want to go over to Luke, and let's go back to Luke 22, and I'm sure that's the one most people know, but let's go to Luke 22 and pick up in about verse 39. He came out and went as as it was his practice, as he was wont, to the Mount of Olives. His disciples followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, You pray. So what he's asking them to do is, You just sit here and watch with me, and you pray. Not for him, even. He said, I'm not even asking you to pray for me. Do you pray for yourselves that you don't enter into temptation? And then he withdrew from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed. And you know what he says here. Father, if you be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And an angel appeared before him and strengthened him. Notice verse 44. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was as it were. In other words, he's sweating so heavy, so profusely, it's like big drops of blood falling off of him. As it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and he came to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. Now I wonder, when I look at that, are they sorrowful for themselves? I hope not. I really do. In other words, he's already rebuked them. He's already told them, you know, you're not as strong as you think you are. You're not as great as you think you are. You're not going to, you know, it's not going to be like you think it's going to be. Are they looking at all of this and questioning, man, what have we done? What have we thrown our lives away to be and to give ourselves to? Is that the sorrow? I hope it's not that. We don't know. He found them sleeping for sorrow. But if you know yourself... They're either watching him in all of his sorrow or their own sorrow or a combination of the two. But you know what? That's life. You're so depressed and so filled with sorrow, so sad about something, you just kind of lay down and finally sleep takes over and you're glad it does. Because you really don't want to think about it anymore. So he comes back and he finds them sleeping for sorrow. And it's interesting to me, if we go over, and I'd like for you to go over with me to Mark's account. And so let's go back to Mark 14. I know you're jumping around a good bit, but this one's interesting to me. So when he comes back and he finds them sleeping for sorrow, and I want to drop drop down to about verse 37 of Mark 14. And notice, uh, he comes and he finds them sleeping, verse 37, and he singled out Peter. Now this was the guy that was going to die for him, remember? This was the guy that wouldn't deny him, not in any wise, not to any degree. And he singled out Peter again, and he said, Simon, do you sleep? Now, wait a minute. You're the one that said, not me, never me, not one little bit. Do you sleep? And notice as he goes on here, could you, and I tell you in the original language, this is singular. He is not speaking to the group. Could you, 
not watch with me one hour. You're the guy that's going to die for me, and you can't even stay awake for an hour with me. But not only that. They take him. And in the story we all know very well, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But they take him to Caiaphas' house. The disciples, the Bible says, they all forsook him and they fled. Matthew 26, verse 56. But they brought him to Caiaphas' house. And you know the story here, how that Peter, who knows how long, it couldn't have been that long, but he comes back. And he starts following from afar off. Now, if you can picture this, Caiaphas had a palace, and it would have been like a house with sort of a patioed area, probably out front of a palace, a courtyard, so to speak. And there are people that are gathered there. And it's in the spring of the year, and so just like our springs can be, especially at nighttime, it can get a little cool. And so they had built a fire, and they were warming themselves. Maybe they built a number of them. But the people, the common people, they kind of follow along. They're outside, and inside, Jesus is being abused and humiliated. And you can see it. It's all open. So you'd be able to look in there and see them jeering at Jesus, ripping his beard out, Isaiah 15, and, and just... All of the humiliation he was going through. Somebody slapping him. Somebody spitting on him, the Bible says. And you'd be able to see all of that. And you're just kind of out there tentatively at the fire, maybe warming yourself at the fire and glancing in there and thinking about it. Maybe it shows on your face. Maybe you're standing close enough to the fire that somebody can look at you and recognize you. But whatever happens, he's warming himself by the fire. And all of a sudden, people start coming up to him and say, hey, you're one of them. Aren't you? No. No, I'm not. Somebody else said, yeah, you're one of them. I, I can tell by your speech. Man, you're from Galilee. You know, you got that southern accent we can all pick up on. No, no, not me, not me, not me. And that goes on for a while. And meanwhile, all of that's going on about Jesus in there. And this is the guy, remember, that was going to die for him. And finally, as someone begins to accuse him, he starts cursing. And swear, I don't know the man. And the Bible says, the rooster crowed. But it's not just that. Look at Luke chapter 22. So let's go back there one last time. Yeah, the rooster crowed. And Jesus... Inside, going through all of that he was going through, the Bible says down in verse 60, or 61, the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. You ever got one of those looks? He used to tell people that all the things I ever did, the times I got caught, the times I got drugged down to, you know, by the city downtown to City Hall and all of that. And I was just a kid, you know, so they're not throwing me in jail and so forth. But of all those times, the worst ever was when I stole from a relative and I got caught by my family. And my father got called in. 
And my dad walked in the back bedroom where I was. And I'm sitting on the bed, and I'm guilty, and there's no way to deny it and all of that. And dad walks in, and I expected dad to blow his top. I wish he had. But this time, he just looked at me. And for the longest time, I'm sitting on the edge of the bed, and I'm saying, man, you know, to myself, I'm saying, man, just say something. Hit me. Do anything, you know. Stop looking at me like that. If you've ever been in one of those situations, you know exactly what Peter is feeling. The Lord looks at him, and everything Jesus has said comes true. Everything he told him he would do in the middle of all his boasting, all of, I'll not, not me, never me, I will never do that, I'll die for you, I'll go to prison for you, they can do anything they want to me, I'll never forsake you. And Jesus looked at him. And he remembered, and of course the Bible tells you as you read it here, that he went out and wept bitterly. I think about Peter this night. And if that were the end of the story, like it would be, like Wes was saying this morning, you know, like a lot of us would be, if that were the end of the story, they would never have their relationship again. Their friendship is over. There would be nothing between Jesus and Peter. And every time Peter even remotely suggested that he wanted to change and be different and all of that, Jesus would say, yeah, but I'll never trust you again. But that's not Jesus. That wasn't even Jesus that night. And I think, as I look at this story, to me, the thing that stands out, and the thing that I'm sure he had to remember when it was all said and done, because he's not Judas. He can't go out. He's not going to go out and kill himself. He's like you are, perhaps, like I am. You do the stuff. You make the mistakes. You wish before God you didn't, but you do But yet, you want to come back from it. You want to be what you always really wanted to be. And I have to believe that over that next three days, out of all the mistakes, out of everything he did, he kept remembering Jesus say, I prayed for you. And when you're converted. And I have to wonder, because you see the reaction on the morning of the resurrection, and he just tears out running and runs to the tomb. I have to wonder, did he hope against hope that what Jesus has said was true? That he really would come back? That it wasn't the end? That it's not going to be one of those stories where you wish you'd told somebody you love, you wish you'd told them one thing, but it ended like this, or it ended like that, or you never got the chance to say it? I wonder if it was one of those things over the next three days where he just prayed and begged God to let it all be true. Let him come back. Let me be able to tell him how sorry I am for what I did. I wonder if he remembered Jesus saying, when you are converted. And I wonder what, if what saved him from doing what Judas did was that he said to himself, he believes in me. And sometimes that makes all the difference. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, look deep down in your heart, regardless of any mistake you've ever made, and know Jesus believes in you. He loves you. He gave himself for you. 
he is not as unforgiving and as hard as people might be. He is the Lord who wants you. If you believe in him that he's the son of God, confess that really. Be willing to change. You need to change if you've done wrong, and Peter certainly had to do that. Be baptized to have your sins washed away. And if you're here and you've done all that, and you've made these kinds of mistakes where you knew better, you knew it was wrong, you just got caught up in something like Peter got caught up, you ran your mouth, you said things you shouldn't have said, you did things you shouldn't have done. And you've had some times where you've wept bitterly because of it. Know that the Lord believes in you and he loves you. Come back to Jesus. Please come while we stand this thing.